Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Hey listeners, welcome back to Buried Motives. This is take two of this case. It really is. <laughs> we tried last night to record, but we actually gave up because the wind was so strong. We were having a full on winter blizzard. The winds were as strong as 70 kilometers an hour. So tropical storm minus the tropics. Add in blowing snow and poor visibility. Well, Melissa had to drive home. Tell us about that, Melissa. <laughs> it was it took some creative driving to get home from your house. <laughs> it's not so bad when you're driving in a blizzard and you're in town and you have all the street lights and the house lights to kind of help you gauge where the road ends. When you're out in the country, you just don't have those things. And so there was one point where I actually had to drive home only looking out my driver's side door to find the edge of the road. <laughs> oh my goodness. I would have been crying. I hate winter driving. But that's why we're recording again today. Take two. Here we go again. This is actually a case that I don't think I'm familiar with when Melissa told me the name of the case. So I am excited. Which I'm so surprised about. Yeah. That you don't know this one. Unless we get into it and then I'm like, oh, oh wait, yeah. I've heard this one. <laughs> Christy like, knows all the cases. <laughs> not all of them, but a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so today we're going to be talking about the insanity plea. It's always been a fascination for me. It's not because I don't think that we should have compassion for people that are legally insane and that there is a difference between somebody who's in their right mind who commits a crime and then somebody who isn't in their right mind. And their accountability should be on different levels, I think. For sure. I think still held accountable, but yes, on different levels. Yeah. But it's the debate over what is sane and what is actually insane and the interplay of guilt and responsibility that leaves me confounded. We've covered a lot of cases that often have conflicting opinions between the experts about if the perpetrator is responsible for their actions or not. Oh, for sure. We often have cases like that. Where you get one expert that's saying that they weren't responsible for their actions because of such and such. And then you get another one saying, no, they were totally in control. Right. And it's that interplay between those different expert opinions that I find so fascinating. It's not so cut and dry sometimes, is it? And I wonder if perps sometimes play on that and try to appear more insane because we've covered cases like that too, where they act up, you know, in front of the jury or things like that in front of the media, but then act totally different when left on their own. Absolutely. It's that difficulty to define and diagnose what actually is insanity that makes it so hard for these different experts to come to the same opinions all the time. Right, because it's not just a blood test. But the plea itself has far-reaching effects. And with the case that we'll discuss today, it seems that his sentencing and his subsequent freedoms that resulted from his insanity plea actually led to the death of another individual. Ooh, it's how this man plays the system that I think is fascinating. Wow. So today we're going to talk about Peter Woodcock, also known as David Michael Kruger. Michael Kruger. I know, right? <laughs> the guy's got the best names ever. So he goes from Peter Woodcock to horror movie murderers. Yes, by choice. <laughs> oh, he changes his name to that. He changes his name to that. And we'll get into it. But Throughout the case, I'm just going to call him Peter just so that it's easier to understand. But I will let you know at what point he changes his name to David Michael. Kruger. Kruger. Freddy Kruger. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, let's get back to the case. Peter Woodcock, did you know, was Canada's youngest serial killer? No. Mm -hmm. That's why I was so surprised that you didn't know this case. Yeah, I really don't think that I do. So there are so many sides to this particular case that could have had their own episode. And I think that we'll have to cover them at a future time because they're so fascinating in their own right. Oh, fun. But today we're going to follow Peter's timeline only. I had originally thought that we could do like a case inside of a case similar to how you did the Paul marriage case. But then there was so much information to cover that we would have been here for days. <laughs> and we're already on day two. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so make sure to check out Barry Motors in the future for connected cases. Ooh, I'm excited. I'm definitely going to do one of them. So Peter was born on March 5th, 1939 to Waida Woodcock, a teenage factory worker in Peterborough, Ontario. There are some limited reports that questioned if Waida might have been a prostitute at the time, and it was believed that she was between the ages of 17 and 19 and was unwed when she gave birth to Peter. Okay. Peter would stay with his mother just a short time. Within a month of his birth, she fully surrendered him to the Children's Aid Society. At the time, the Children's Aid Society was a charitable organization founded on the principle of providing aid to underprivileged children and to prevent cruelty toward them. There's not a lot of reasons why she gave up her child in the documentation, but from a description given of his early years and just a base knowledge of how difficult it would have been for an unwed mother in 1939, you can make an educated guess that she didn't feel that she could care for him. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And if she is having to do sex work, that's not a safe environment. What do you do with a new baby while you're out working? That's right. And it didn't sound like she had much family support. Well, I was just going to say in that year, like 1939, a lot of families would have disowned you if something like that had happened. And she may not have already had the family support because if she's working both of these jobs at 17, she probably doesn't have a safe place to go home to. Mm -hmm. So she tried to give him the best start that she could by surrendering him. That's right. She did breastfeed him until he was a month old, and it was difficult to gauge from the documentation if she had breastfed him and tried to keep him for a month and then decided to give him up, or if she had tried to give him up right away to the Children's Aid Society, but he had such difficulties feeding and wouldn't take a bottle that they continued to have her breastfeed him for at least a month. Oh, wow. But right from the very beginning, Peter showed difficulties with almost everything. Oh, so interesting. Right from birth, he had difficulty feeding. He would cry nonstop and would refuse to sleep. And today, we know that these are all warning signs of future mental health issues in infants. Really? Yeah. So when we go over an infant's history, when we're having the history described by the parents, those are things that you're watching out for. Wow. And it's just their inability to cope with the world around them and to regulate. You're talking about extreme, like extreme constant. Extreme crying, yeah. extreme feeding issues. Right. Yes. And never, ever sleeping. But don't worry, any new moms that are listening. It is normal for our babies to sometimes not want to eat and be fussy and not sleep and that That's kind of right, stuff. That's right, because this is such an extreme case. This is for not sure. the norm. But those are some of the things that you watch out for. I just find it so fascinating that right from the very beginning, he was displaying some characteristics. Yeah. He was placed in several receiving homes, which today we would call foster homes. Okay. But his stays were all short-lived. And that's not a big surprise for a baby that is so difficult to take care of. He yeah. was too much for any of the families to actually handle. It's taxing when a baby won't stop crying. So there are reports that he had difficulty forming any attachments with any of his caregivers and would have difficulty developing language skills as well. Again, both red flags to future problems. So I'm really curious how you're going to take this to starting out with all these signs of a mental illness to, no, he was faking it because you can't fake it as a baby. 
You can't fake it as a baby. But just because you have a mental illness doesn't mean that you're insane and not criminally responsible. Oh, very true. Mm -hmm. I'm just really curious how this is all going to interplay with one another. (laughs) (laughs) It's the expert's opinions. They eventually do declare him insane. But then there's certain things that he does that I'm like, wait a minute. Because we've covered so many other cases that say, oh, that person isn't insane because they did X, Y, and Z. And in this case, you'll find that Peter does X, Y, and Z and is still declared insane. Huh. So maybe plays it up a little. It's an interesting time to have any mental illness. For sure. You did not have the resources and the help that we thankfully have today. But I think it's important to point out that at this time, there wasn't the same understanding of attachment that we have today. It was actually a policy of the Children's Aid Society to frequently move their wards between foster homes because it was the belief of the day that it would be more detrimental to the children to form attachments. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is not true. It's not true at all. But you can see how they thought that. So they purposely moved them frequently so that they would never form attachments. That's so sad. And now we know how important that early childhood bonding and attachment is. Absolutely. This belief didn't help Peter in any way. Peter's early speech was described as strange whining animal noises that did not resemble anything like childish babble that his caregivers expected. Oh, he would scream when anyone approached him. That's eerie. So he just had a threat bias that he needed to protect himself from anyone and everyone. Oh, that is really sad. At such a young age, he felt like nobody else was going to protect him. He felt in danger. All the time. Yeah. Yeah. Aw, and babies shouldn't feel that way ever. No. There are reports that at least one incidence of abuse took place. At the age of two, Peter was brought to the emergency department after a beating left him with an injured neck that required treatment. (gasps) They called it a twisted neck on the doctor's reports. Oh, that's terrible. Mm -hmm. And this was from one of the foster homes. This is one of the foster homes. Oh, shame on you, foster home. Yep. On a two-year-old. Oh, But can you imagine what it was like to live with this child? That if anybody approached him, he would just scream at the top of his lungs? Yeah, but I wouldn't twist his neck. And you wouldn't. But (laughs) would you, (laughs) Nurse Melissa? (laughs) I would not. But I have felt that rage, right? (laughs) I've been that parent that has this baby that does not ever stop crying. Yeah. And you do get to that point where I need to put you down and I need to go into a different room or else I am going to hurt you. I have had definitely moments in motherhood where I have given myself a timeout because you know, okay, I'm going to escalate here. I'm going to yell. I'm going to do whatever. So I think it's best if I lock myself in my room, have a little cry, and then I can face you again. (laughs) This is best for both of us. Yes. Right? So I can totally empathize with that urge to do it. Not that I would actually follow through on the urge. No, but that foster home, total dirtbag. Yeah. Yeah. You don't ever. There's no excuse. There is no excuse. I don't care how much a baby hisses or growls or animal noises at you or screams yeah never never okay just so sad it really is by peter's later recounts of his childhood he was ignored for long periods of time and left to lie in darkness with no one picking him up or holding him what so that's how he recalls his childhood but i want to point out here that these recollections that peter makes kind of after the fact are after years and years of psychotherapy. Okay. And I'm not sure how believable these accounts are, given other information that we'll learn about Peter's manipulation and storytelling later in life. But given the situation and the time period, they're definitely plausible that he was just left alone and left to cry. But he recalls having these vivid memories of being left to lie in the dark as an infant. Really? Mm -hmm. People actually have memories of infancy? That's what his claims are. 
I don't think many people remember much and have a concrete memory of anything much before the age of three. Yeah, it's saying most between like ages three and four, but some can be like between two and three. And so he's describing these memories he had earlier than that. Just saying that some can be under two. And if they're profound, and this sounds like it was a profound memory. So who knows? That's how he remembers his childhood. At the end of the day, that's all that matters is how he recalls it and how it affects him. Right. So at the age of three, things changed for Peter. He was taken in by the Maynard family. Frank and Susan Maynard were an upper middle class family with a 13 year old son of their own. His name was George. From the outside looking in, the family seemed very stereotypical of the time. Frank worked as an accountant, and Susan was a housewife that cared for the foster children that they invited into their homes. She was described as a forceful woman with an exaggerated sense of propriety. Oh. Susan was particularly moved by Peter's story and his challenging circumstances, and would go on to make Peter's success her personal mission. But she would take this mission so seriously that she would actually neglect her own son in the process. You gotta multitask, honey. Yeah. I was wondering, had you ever felt that your mom took somebody else's side over yours? No, but it it can take their time. Yes. Right? And I was a little bit older when they started to foster. And so totally fine because those kids needed some time. Mm -hmm. And I never felt neglected in the process. Mm. Well, apparently George did feel neglected. Aww. And not just George, but her husband also, Frank, felt neglected as well. Huh. But I thought it was interesting that she was already showing this propensity to be obsessive about Peter. That is interesting. Mm-hmm. Susan would ensure through hours of tedious tutoring and therapy that Peter learned to walk and communicate. Wow. Which is incredible because he was, yeah. up until age two, he had no verbal skills whatsoever. Others' criticism of the odd little boy and the peculiar way he walked just made Susan that much more protective of him. And for the first time in his life, Peter developed a bond with one of his caregivers. Although it was a little bit of an odd one. But at Ooh. least he has someone in his corner for the first time ever who is fighting for him and isn't leaving him in the dark to just cry or twisting his neck. Absolutely. Yeah. So he develops a really, really strong bond with Susan. Well, it's his first bond he's ever had. Supervisors from the Children's Aid Society and different physicians would make comments about the relationship with Peter and his foster mother. He would cling to her like a lifeline and would be what is described as excessively affectionate towards Susan. Okay. I'm trying to see the downside of it at this point. If he has this overly strong attachment, at least it's doing some good. Peter recounts that his mom had an accident, or Susan had an accident while she was at a train station and somebody had pushed her down. And after spending some time in the hospital, they brought her back home. And what he remembers is that everybody had to be really, really quiet around her and that she was just given the right to just yell and scream and do whatever she wanted when nobody else could do that. And so he thought it was unjust that she was getting to display these odd behaviors after this injury that she had. And it sounds like from his account that she had a concussion. Oh, she yeah. was pushed down and she injured her head. And Yeah, everyone had to be quiet. Yeah, everyone yeah. had to be quiet around her. And then she just got whatever she wanted. If she wanted to watch TV, then she got to watch TV all day. And then he did say that it was after this injury that she received that she started to abuse him. But that Aww. was the only report that I ever found about abuse towards him from Susan. Okay. Yeah. Well, and there can be slight personality changes with a severe concussion too. Yeah. Absolutely. While Susan sounds like she is this fabulous, like, caring person, there is some kind of undertones. There's no evidence in the documentation that Susan ever abused him. But by Peter's recounts, there is these undertones that Susan was this domineering, abusive person towards him. Oh. Mm -hmm. It's a really weird relationship between that mother figure and Peter. 
which we see a lot with serial killers. <laughs> I was just going to say that is one of our dirtbag details that we posted is that they usually have unusual relationships, relationships with their mothers. Yeah. And so we weren't there at this time. So we don't really know what was yeah. actually going on. But I think it's important to note that there were physicians and there were social workers that recognized enough to document that there was an odd relationship between the two of them. Okay. And remember, these are individuals or professionals that are used to seeing and working with kids with mental illnesses and kids with attachment issues. And, right. and it stood out to them okay. that this was excessively affectionate. And then by Peter's own recounts, that he called the relationship abusive later in life. Okay, so there's some red flags for sure. Yeah, but no hospital records like he was when he was two. Right. At the age of five, Peter would develop the habit of wandering off. Some of these wanderings were to avoid children of the neighborhood who would tease him relentlessly because apparently he had this funny little duck-like walk where he would swing his arm and his Aww. leg at the same time. Aww. It was just how he learned to walk. And his wandering was an effort to control his anxiety that he felt around others. So he would just wander off by himself and hide in bushes just to get away from other people. And we've talked about this so many times. Don't bully. No. They you can grow up and be Become serial killers. It's not a good thing to do. <laughs> it happens often. Mm -hmm. There's so much documented bullying in Aww. his little life. Yeah. The bullying would continue throughout his public school career. Some of his wanderings, though, did serve to fuel his passion for streetcars. From an early age, it was recounted by several people who knew him that Peter would study streetcar schedules and then wait on the street and time the cars to see if they were punctual or not. Oh, that's fun. So he had this huge fascination with streetcars and their routines and schedules. Huh. It does sound familiar, right? Yeah, it sounds like autism, is it? Never officially diagnosed. Of course, not in this time. No. But there are several of these characteristics that I think you would call autism today. Yeah. Or at least somewhere on the spectrum. For sure. So from the ages of 7 to 12, Peter would receive extensive therapy at SickKids Hospital because of his fragile emotional state. When he entered school, it became clear very early on that Peter was not well-suited for public school. It was suggested by the Children's Aid Society that homeschooling or to have Peter institutionalized with other damaged children would be the only way that Peter would learn. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so is that what happens? No. Oh. Susan instead chooses to put him in private school. Oh. Because she's like, nope, you're not putting limits on him. We're not institutionalizing him. We're going to give him the absolute best education. And they paid for private school for him. Now, are they still fostering or have they adopted him by this point? They're still fostering him. Okay. So it's during this time that actually Susan expresses a wish to adopt him. And she's told by the doctors, you are crazy. Do not adopt this child. Really? Mm-hmm. So it's discouraged by many of the professionals around Peter. Like, you don't want this child. Don't That's adopt shocking. this one. Yep. That's and so not nice. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Every kid's adoptable. <laughs> nope. Apparently Peter was not. Aww. So that's the kind of mentality he grew up with. The professionals in his life was, no, he was not worth the effort. You should institutionalize him. Oh, for sure. But in the 50s, that's what you did do. If you had any type of birth defect or issues at birth, yeah. they went to an institution. And that was just what was accepted at that time. It was actually believed that the institution would be able to provide a greater care for these specialized individuals. Right. Wasn't there even a scandal about that in the royal family? Yeah. Yeah. Two of the queen's cousins, they were locked away in a mental institution and the family members didn't even know that these girls had... No, it was all very hush-hush. That was just what happened at the time. Well, at that time, it would have been an embarrassment to the monarchy, mm -hmm. right? And so... That you would actually have that genetic gene pool? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's all hush-hush and swept underneath the rug. They went to the institution, and that's where they spent the rest of their life. 
That's so sad. Mm -hmm. And that's what was being recommended to Susan is that, no, you definitely don't want to adopt this one. What you need to do is put him in the institution. But Susan chose to put him in private school instead. So this foster parent who wasn't adopting this child, which I think is a stand-up move, she just saw that he needed something different and she wasn't willing to commit him. Peter would attend the small school of Waycroft, but even in this environment, it was not suitable. And the Maynards would come to agree with Peter's doctors and the Children's Aid Society that he would require education at the Sunnyside Children's Centre in Kingston, Ontario because of his fragile emotional state. Okay. And Sunnyside was a specialized school for troubled youth. It wasn't his academics that suffered at school, though. He was a rather smart boy getting like 100% on his tests. And wow. all of his teachers said that he was this polite kid that readily answered and was almost like a know-it-all. Oh. He had an impressive memory for details and his difficulty with speech had subsided and he could now express himself with a strong vocabulary. But it was the vocabulary of an adult, not that of a child. Oh, so mm -hmm. he went from one extreme to the other. Yeah. From no verbal skills to highly advanced verbal skills. Yeah. But still communicated in like a really odd fashion for a child. In social settings, he couldn't keep up with the normal children's rules of engagement. He would often be left out of play for being small and weak and strange. It was noted that he could direct play among smaller children, but had significant challenges when it came to children of his own age. The older kids easily picked up on his oddities. He would be boastful and talk about strange things. But he did really, really well with older adults who could make allowances for his odd social, like him missing social cues because they made up for it. Right. Where kids couldn't. Right. And he only ever bonded with Susan. So he was comfortable more in an adult situation than with other children. Absolutely. And when he was with children, he hid from them. His interactions with other children would leave him fearful and resentful towards them. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. Is he a child killer? He is. Oh, no. You didn't warn me about that. <laughs> Should we throw in a warning now? This is about child killing. And it is brutal. Oh. Peter did find solace in imaginary worlds that he would create. Peter's imaginary worlds weren't typical of other children his age. The fantasies would be full of curious cruelty and the urges that Peter had. One particular one that Peter would entertain later in his youth was one about being a leader of a gang called the Winchester Heights Gang, a gang of 500 youth that would follow Peter around on his bike. In this imaginary world, Peter was the one everyone wanted to be and was the one that was in charge. So these fantasies would go on throughout Peter's lifetime, even into his adulthood. That's wild. Mm -hmm. But, but come you... on, who doesn't want to have a gang of 500 <laughs> following you on your bike? And it totally makes sense with his upbringing of why he would want that gang and want to be the leader yeah, and want to be in charge. Sure. And yeah. yeah. And there are so many that like 500 youth, that's yeah, like that's an lot. insane number, right? But just everybody wanted to be in his bike gang. In real life, Peter was undergoing therapy sessions and he was using the things that he learned there on other vulnerable youth. And he's actually manipulating the other children. Wow. Mm -hmm. He would convince classmates that if they wanted to be in the gang with him, that a favor was required. His favors for entrance were often sexual games played when adults weren't present. Aww. Peter, at the age of 13, was caught fondling an 11-year-old girl. And then Peter would later claim that he had sex with a 12-year-old, but that it was consensual. What? Mm -hmm. So we're getting into our dirtbag stage now. Yes. Less, oh, poor Peter and more, oh, maybe we've just created a monster. Yeah. Or did he start out as a monster because he had all these issues right. right from the very beginning? In reports by the Children's Aid Society made during the time that he was in school at Sunnyside, Peter was described as 
slight in build, neat in appearance, bright eyes, and wide open worried facial expression, and moves rapidly, darts ahead, is interested and questioning, and constantly in conversation. That paints quite the picture. At the age of 10, doctors at SickKids Hospital believed that Peter displayed schizophrenic tendencies. And by the age of 11, he was being described as an angry little boy with very little self-control and acting on everything that entered his mind. Ooh. So yeah. no impulse control. No impulse and control. And that's dangerous. Mm-hmm. But does it mean he's insane? I don't know. It depends on your definition of insane. Yeah. And that's where you go back to all these different experts that have differing opinions. Yeah. Different right. criteria of what makes you insane. Right. But you think it should be more standardized? Because it has such far-reaching effects. So I looked it up. The definition of insanity is just the state of being seriously mentally ill or madness. It's so broad. Yeah. Because I don't think everybody who's seriously mentally ill is insane. Not by the sense of how we use that term. No. Well, for me, when you think of insane, it's more so that they have no control over their actions. Right. And they have no understanding of what they're doing. Right. I know. For me, if you are with it enough to know how to manipulate somebody and use things to your advantage, that to me doesn't scream insane. No. Because you have an understanding of what you're doing, your actions, and the consequences that they'll lead to. Yeah. That to me is more being calculated. That's right. Yeah. So although Peter was never thought to be violent by any of his psychiatrists or the social workers that worked with him, there were several signs of his violent tendencies when viewed in hindsight. During an outing at the Canadian National Exhibition with a social worker, he expressed an interest in having a bomb fall on the fair that kills all the children. Which That's dark. It is dark, but I thought, okay, let's think about what his upbringing is. Children are always so mean to him. Yeah. And so maybe that was just one of those thoughts and he just voiced it and he didn't know to keep it internalized, right? Like, wouldn't it be great if there were no children in the world? If I could only (laughs) hang out with adults because adults liked him. Right. And let's face it, we could talk a whole episode just on intrusive thoughts. Yeah. Everybody gets an intrusive thought from time to time. Absolutely. And he just has shown repetitively that he doesn't have the impulse control not to blurt out those intrusive thoughts. Right. So who knows if that's what it was or if this was something like that he wanted to actually see happen and he theorized on it and fantasized about it. But it was a thought that he shared with one of his social workers. When he was left alone, he tore down window blinds, chopped up all of his socks, carved symbols into the dining room table, and smashed a very valuable radio of the Maynards. Oh. Mm-hmm. It was reported that he liked to sit alone and cut up all of his clothing. That's weird. Mm-hmm. One day, Susan left the house for 20 minutes and came back to find her canary dead. Peter had laid it out on the piano, surrounded by candles. What? Like mm-hmm. a seance? Mm-hmm. He told his mother that the family dog had killed the bird. She was mortified by the murder of the canary. And from that time forward, Susan was afraid to leave him home by himself because she feared he might catch the house on fire. Whoa. And that is a serial killer characteristic. And so is cruelty to animals. Yeah. Yikes. I haven't said yikes in a while. That deserved a yikes. <laughs> in September 1954, at the age of 15, Peter returned to live with the Maynards. He had finished his education at the Sunnyside School. And social workers had warned prior to his discharge from the school that he was not ready to face society. They had actually recommended that he stay a year longer. So that it sounded like the typical age to kind of age out of the Sunnyside School was 14. And they kept him a year longer because they didn't think he was ready to go home. 
and their warnings would prove true. He still lived in an imaginary world with the Winchester Heights gang and had an obsession with public transit running on time. He was sent back to Waycroft, the private school that he attended earlier, and he tried to fit in by joining the Glee Club and the Drama Club, but again, Peter would be bullied, and he would switch to the Lawrence Park Collegiate School. There, other students would vandalize two of Peter's prized possessions. They pushed him down an embankment and broke his bike. <gasps> oh, kids are the worst. Mm-hmm. They also ripped the Sea Cadet badges that he had earned in Sunnyside off of his jacket. These were two things that Peter was immensely proud of. He had earned the Sea Cadet's badges by completing a program and had been given the red and white Schwinn bicycle by his foster parents. The bike allowed him to escape bullies and to watch the trains and streetcars and to do other sinister things that we're going to get into. But his bike was like his most prized possession. Well, even in his fantasy, being the gang leader, it's all on his bike. That's right. And so these bullies knew what he prized the most. That's terrible. And they picked on him. A short six weeks later, after starting at Lawrence Park Collegiate, he would switch schools again and go to Bloordale College, a small private institution as a grade nine student. And he stayed there miserable until grade 11. He hated school. Well, I would too if people were ripping my clothes and breaking my bike. Peter's bike was fixed or replaced after the incident. And I'm not really sure which one it was. It's just, again, he ends up with a red and white Schwinn bicycle. And with that, he rides all over the greater Toronto area, even in the winter. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Doesn't that just make it that much more bizarre that he's riding a bike in Canadian winters? (laughs) But that's what Peter loved to do is, so even in the winter, he would ride his bike. That's how obsessed he was with with riding his bike. It was his prized possession. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The Maynards knew that Peter would ride his bike to all areas of Toronto, but didn't know about his preference to frequent the more rundown areas of Parkdale and Cabbage Town. From an early age, under Susan's influence, he developed a prejudice towards people he believed to be of lower class. Unknown to his foster family, in February of 1956, Peter had begun to have violent dreams of murder and rape. Oh no. And he believed that an alien self had entered his body and caused him to have a strong attraction towards children. Ugh. And how old is he at this time? He would have been 16. Because his birthday is in March, and this is in February. So just before he turned 17. Day and night, he would fantasize about killing them and finding out what their private parts look like. Peter would eventually start to act on these fantasies during his bike rides. Peter would lure young children with the promise of a ride on his bike or to shoot pigeons, and then he would travel to secluded areas around the CNE. That's terrible. Mm -hmm. And the kids would just trust him like it's a teenager, you know, on a bike. Yeah, it's not an adult. That's low threat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There, in his own words, he would participate in anatomical exploration. He would choke the children unconscious and then strip them naked and view their bodies. He would then leave them to wake up naked and afraid. There were several reports made to the police about the children returning to their parents with bruises after falling asleep after a boy on a bike would give them a ride. But there was not solid enough leads to make any headway in any of the investigations. Oh, so at this point, he's not raping and murdering them. He's just wanting to look. He's just looking at them. Peter escalated very rapidly. And in March 1956, he created a plan to kill a particular 10-year-old little girl with a penknife to see what she would look like on the inside. Oh, his plan went awry, though, when he became afraid of the dark and feared being able to escape the ravine that he had taken the little girl to. When later interviewed about the incident, Peter would say it was a turning point. I was already troubled with my fantasies and dreams. This 10 year old little girl, I did have plans of killing her and it didn't dawn on me that she would die. Well, I knew she would die, but that would be the extent of it. 
I wanted to look at the arm to see how the muscles attached to it. This was going to be a very thorough anatomical lesson, though I don't believe I would have been able to name a third of the things I would have seen. What? So that 10-year-old girl does not know how lucky she was that it was dark out that night. One of the things that Peter did that raises suspicions for me about whether he was truly insane or not is that he was careful about where he chose his victims from. He went to neighborhoods that were far from his home and would never frequent the same one twice. So doesn't that mean that that he could appreciate what he was doing was wrong because he didn't want to get caught? Yeah. So on Saturday, September 15th of the same year, Peter met seven-year-old Wayne Mallett at the CNE grounds while riding his bike. Oh, he's going to murder him because you used his full name. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Wayne's family was visiting his grandmother, and he had been denied going with his older brothers to a movie theater. As a consolation prize, his parents had told him to go explore the CNE grounds. Because the grounds were so close to the train tracks, and they knew that Wayne loved trains, as most young boys do, they had kind of said, okay, you can't go to the movies, but why don't you just go explore the train tracks? Oh, how would those brothers feel after? Mm-hmm. Like, we should have just taken him to the movie. Yeah. At the time of his encounter with Peter, Wayne was wandering around alone. Peter took the little boy to a hidden place just west of the Dufferin Gates with the promise that they could see the trains close up. There, he tried to get Wayne to play what he coined sex games. But when Wayne refused, Peter lost his temper. Wayne was found in the early hours of the 16th with his face pushed into the dirt with two bite marks found on his body, one on the boy's cat and the other on his buttocks. Near his body, police found pennies ritualistically scattered, human feces, and bicycle tire tracks leaving the scene. <gasps> human feces? Mm-hmm. What? Isn't that... Why? That's just what he did. You don't hear that often. Was the feces just like a final sign of disrespect? Like, was it on the victim or no, just beside just him? just found near. Oh, near. Yeah. Or did he just have to go? Is this a I recurring thing? I got to know. No, it's not a recurring thing. Oh, so maybe he just really had to had go. Had to go to the bathroom? <laughs> I don't know, but so weird. That's strange. Mm-hmm. They knew the victim had been undressed and then redressed again because of the bite marks. Right. And was there any sexual assault? No. Just the bite marks. Just the bite marks. Okay. Yeah. Oh, and how sad, like seven. But back in those days, it wasn't odd to just let your kids go out and play. No, not at all. And Toronto at this time doesn't have the reputation that it does now. Right. Actually, it was called Toronto the Good because it had such a low crime rate compared to its population size. It was more like a wholesome community. Yeah. A night watchman would come forward and say that he had been stopped by a strange looking teenager on a bike who had asked him if he ever found bodies in the bushes at the CNE. Oh. And if he had found bodies, what would you do with them? The guard then asked the boy if he had seen a body, but the boy answered no. He did see a boy, however, that looked just like me running out of the bushes. So this is showing some forethought as well. Exactly. I'm going to tell him that there's a boy that looks just like me that I saw running out of the bushes. I'm trying to cover my tracks. Yeah. The description the guard provided was of a boy about 14 to 16 years old, slight build, just over five feet, Straight dark hair parted to the side and combed over, a gray windbreaker, a t-shirt that was white with red horizontal stripes, dark pants or blue jeans, well-spoken, with a voice that still seemed boyish, and with a very nice touring bike. Remember, he's talking to a security guard, so they're trained to remember details. Details, yeah, to pay attention. So here in our story is where we come to one of the possible side cases. The police use this witness's account to hone in very quickly on a 14-year-old boy named Ron Moffat. Despite not fitting the witness description, having an alibi collaborated by several others, and being unable to ride a bike due to an inner ear injury, he was the prime suspect that was brought in for questioning. 
why? That sounds like, okay, he looks kind of like him, so let's pick him. So Ron had skipped school and he was hiding from his parents and his parents reported him as missing. And so the police thought, oh, here's this kid that he's not going home. And he kind of matched the description. Actually, he was a little bit taller. His coat was the wrong color, but they kind of made it work. And after a coerced confession... Ron Moffat was charged and found guilty of Wayne's death. What? Yep. They got him to confess? They did. Yeah. He picked the wrong day to skip school. Ron Moffat's story is one of those ones that we could cover just for interest sake. For sure. Right? That's terrible. It is awful. He was 14, you said? He was 14 at the time. Meanwhile, Peter continued on his sickening bike tours. Just one month after he had murdered Wayne, he met Gary Morris, a nine-year-old that was playing outside in Cabbage Town after attending a movie. Peter would later confess, I was always on the prowl for someone, and since he was so interested in the bicycle, he seemed like a good catch. He was small, only nine years old. I asked him if he wanted to go for a bike ride, and he said sure. He rode on the bar side saddle. Cherry Beach was about a mile away. I knew Toronto well, and I had several of these parts picked out. So he knew all these secluded areas of Toronto. Yeah. And so if he's picked out these areas, that's premeditation. Mm-hmm. He's just waiting for the right victim. That's right. And he was good at picking them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he knows, he totally knows it's wrong. Oh, he absolutely yeah. does. Yep. Once he had the boy in a secluded area, he choked him unconscious and then stripped him naked and then began to viciously beat him while the boy lay prostrate on the ground. Oh, I wonder if he was wanting to get out that rage. You know, how the kids had picked on him. He never actually gives an explanation of why he beat this one. But Mm. it's a good guess that it was rage against other children. Gary's mother reported him missing that night at 8 p.m. But unfortunately, although Gary's friend gave a witness statement that said he had ridden away on a bicycle with a teenage boy, the police believed that Gary had run away because he had done it in the past. And his body wouldn't be found for 10 days. Oh, no. Mm Mm-hmm. So because he had run away in the past, they just figured, oh, he's just run away again. And they kind of discounted his friend's witness statement that a boy on a bicycle had taken him. Yeah. So not the best police work going on right now. But you have to remember, Toronto at the time isn't used to a lot of crime. And so their detectives and their police are actually really inexperienced. The coroner would determine that Gary had died of a ruptured liver. His body would have Peter's bite marks on his neck. And like the first murder, Peter had ritualistically spread items around the crime scene. This time, it was paper clips. And like his first victim, he had redressed Gary's body. And they didn't make the connection to the first one? Despite the obvious similarities between the two crime scenes, no connections were ever made. Okay, I'm standing by my statement then. Shoddy police work. (laughs) (laughs) The police continued to believe Wayne's murderer was safely behind bars and Gary's murderer was their only focus. And Peter wasn't a suspect. And it just happens to be two different teenage boys on a bike, biting them, redressing them, putting little trinkets around them. But you have to remember that at the time, there was no concept of a serial killer. That term actually wasn't coined until 1981. Right. But they still have <laughs> brains and can think, maybe this was the same There's person. A connection. <laughs> Even if there isn't a name to describe what yep. this person is, someone can kill more than once. But they think that they've already found the murderer for the other guy. Come on. Yeah, it looks very obvious <laughs> looking back. It does. Peter's next victim was Carol Voice. On January 19th, 1957, after finishing his Saturday chores, listening to some music, and visiting some stores after lunch, Peter came across two young children playing outside. 
After asking the children their ages, Peter chooses four-year-old Carol to take for a ride on his bike. Aww. Peter would take the young girl to the Bluer Viaduct. When she wasn't watching, Peter grabbed her from behind and began to choke her. As he choked her, Carol fought back. She ripped her fingernails against Peter's clothes and tore at the mud. When Peter eventually overcame the four-year-old and she became unconscious, he undressed her and looked at her body. But this time, looking would not be enough. He molested her with his fingers and then inserted a tree branch so forcefully into her vagina that he caused an internal hemorrhage that would lead to her death. No. Mm -hmm. That's terrible. He's an extra dirtbag. So disgusting. Peter redressed Carol and then tried to leave the crime scene, but he had difficulty climbing out of the ravine and took his frustration out by beating Carol's lifeless body. When he eventually made it out of the ravine, Peter was seen by numerous witnesses. He randomly blurts out, if there's a murder down there, they'll try to blame it on me, to a passing University of Toronto professor. It's just so bizarre. It's like, just shut your mouth. You don't yeah. have to like blurt things like that out. But this kind of goes to, yeah, he knows what he's doing, but he doesn't actually have a full understanding of all the consequences. Right. So then I go back to, well, maybe he is insane. Yeah. But it doesn't sound like he has any regard for human life. None whatsoever. Carol's disappearance was reported within 10 minutes of her leaving with Peter on his bicycle. And within 90 minutes, police were searching for her. Unfortunately, they would find her frozen body at 11.09 that night. The end of the search was signaled by three rifle shots. Oh, oh my goodness. That's a parent's worst nightmare. And police are still not connecting? Well, this is where they start to make the connections. Okay. The media took hold of this third victim and panic spread like crazy. With breaking news reports interrupting TV programming and newspaper headlines overflowing from the first page over to page five, Toronto was rocked by the three murders of three small children in the space of five months. A massive manhunt was initiated that involved more than 2,300 police officers questioning every teenager that resembled the composite drawing from witnesses. 2,300 police officers? 2,300 police officers. Okay, so now they've stepped up their game. That's right. Yeah, they've redeemed themselves a little in my eyes now. (laughs) The likeness of the drawing was uncanny to Peter, but no one seemed to pick up on it when Peter visited the police station on Sunday morning, the day after the murder. He was a frequent visitor to the station and said years later that he did so because he didn't want to break his routine and appear more suspicious that way okay maybe i take back my other statement (laughs) (laughs) he literally walks into the police station and they have this sketch of him and he's standing right in front of them and they didn't make the connection no because he was this boy that they all knew he was just this odd teenager that they all knew big whoop he's right there that's even worse because he's familiar and you see this composite sketch and he doesn't occur to you nope and he rode up to the police station <laughs> on his bicycle literally they were handed him on a silver platter <laughs> yeah. and they're like well, have a good day peter the <sighs> next morning while sitting with his foster brother george who was then a law student peter was questioned about what he had been doing lately by him after his brother looked at the drawing in the newspaper oh good for him mm-hmm. at the same time that peter was being questioned by his brother over the breakfast table a local police officer was recalling an incident report of a 10 year old girl that had been previously reported missing and was later found in the presence of a teenage boy peter woodcock the incident report still had the boy's address and the police officer had a hunch and made a visit to go and question peter oh, okay It didn't take long for Peter to confess to all three murders, being unconcerned with the horror that he was describing to the police officers, only concerned about Susan finding out about what he had done. And what he said was, my fear was that mother would find out. Mother was my biggest fear. 
I didn't know if the police would let her at me. Whoa. So that is showing a childlike mentality. A childlike mentality and a fear of being abused. So maybe she did abuse him after her head injury. Yeah. As long as they promised to protect him from his mother, he kept blabbering on and on. As he walked them through the crime scenes, he told them, I have actually attacked many children, even though I love children as a rule. I have felt sexually inclined to. I won't go into the number of cases, but will say that there have been about 11 or 12 of them before I met the girl that is for this case. I feel relieved now that I've told you the truth because I was worried. Whatever happens, I don't want to go home tonight. I don't want to have to face my parents. While awaiting trial, Peter was a model prisoner and would talk to anyone who would listen about his crimes and his anatomical explorations. Peter Woodcock was tried only for the murder of Carol Voice. On April 11, 1957, after a four-day trial, he was found not guilty by reason of insanity. The law requires two things to be proven for an insanity defense. The person on trial committed the crime and that he did not fully understand the nature or the consequences of his actions. And so it's not really that he has he's mad and insane, but did he understand the nature and the consequences of his actions? Did he know that what he was doing was wrong? And did he know that what he was doing would kill those people? I say yes. I think so too. Yeah, because he, even as he's walking out of the ravine, if you see a dead body there, it wasn't me. Yeah. You know, so he knows that he killed that person and he knows it's wrong because he's worried that his mommy's going to find out. And he knows enough to go to different neighborhoods so that he can keep doing it. For sure. Mm -hmm. Does he have mental impairments? Absolutely. Absolutely. Should he be held responsible? Absolutely. But they don't find him responsible. And why is he not being tried for the other boys? Well, for at least the one, because with Wayne, they already incarcerated somebody else for him. No, but he, why not the other boy? He goes on and he admits to them, but yeah. they only bother putting him through the trial for one. Peter would go on to testify of Ron Moffat's innocence in March 1957, resulting in Ron's conviction being overturned. Oh, good. It wasn't that he's like, oh, somebody else is taking the blame for me. It was, he can't take credit for my murder. Huh. Well, good for Ron that, yeah. that he did. So he would get right? out. But yeah, poor Ron's Ron. story is awful. So he spent almost a year in prison and it changed him forever. Oh, I bet. Mm-hmm. Psychologists argue that Peter had a lifelong pattern of not recognizing the consequences of his actions and therefore was not responsible for his actions. So that's how they deemed him not guilty by reason of insanity. Okay. Peter was sent to the Oak Ridge Division of the Maximum Security Penetanguishene Mental Health Center in Penetanguishene, Ontario. And Oak Ridge was the only institution of its kind in Canada. Its purpose was to provide custodial care for the criminally insane. Peter arrived at Oak Ridge at 11 a.m. on April 20th, 1957. At the time, he was 5'5 and 105 pounds. And with him, he brought a bathrobe, three Bibles, a suit, a pair of eyeglasses, a handkerchief, and set of street clothes. Oh, three Bibles. Was he religious? Susan was. Okay. Maybe she packed them for him. <laughs> <laughs> he needed three, not just one. Well, if your son had done those things, maybe you would pack him three Bibles too. Or did he keep them one for each murder? Ooh, that's a sinister thought. During his first year there, Peter displayed some very unusual actions. He was described as being smarter than all the other patients and more sane. But the institution wore on him, and without access to his other coping mechanisms, he settled into a depression. In October 1957, Peter took a half a meter, or just over 19 and a half inches, of knotted copper wire from an electrical cord and inserted it into his penis. Oh! <gasps> 
I was not expecting that. He did some really strange things. 19 and a half inches? Mm-hmm. That's doing some damage. It did. Susan, ever his advocate, became concerned over this event and Peter's intentions with it and began corresponding with Peter's psychologist. These letters would continue into the late 1960s. And apparently having some communication and knowing that Susan still cared for his welfare was enough to lift Peter's spirits. Oh. So nobody really understands why he did this. Was he trying to just hurt himself? Was he after the sensation of it? Was he trying to commit suicide? Like nobody knows. Not that that's a good way to commit suicide. No, I was just going to say, um, uh, there's yeah. other things he could have done with that wire than yeah. inserting it. Any male listeners? I bet just cringed. <laughs> like, no tomorrow. 19 and a half <laughs> inches. Yeah. As his groin healed, he became the busiest homosexual in the mental health facility and was constantly being reprimanded for being in other men's cells or rooms. After that? Mm -hmm. After his groin had healed, he gained this reputation of being everywhere with all of the men. And because he was smarter and what other people deemed as more sane, he was able to manipulate the other inmates or patients. Huh. So I wonder if him doing that... Like inserting that copper wire was more of a sexual thing then because now he's like sexually charged and going for it. Oh, I think so. So Peter developed a habit of exploiting the other patients. While in Oak Ridge, Peter formed an extension of his bike gang, only now he referred to it as the Brotherhood. Peter would convince other less sane patients he had connections with the outside world and even outer world connections. Peter would use entry into the group's exclusive ranks as trade for oral sex or to receive personal gifts from other patients, which he's done before. Right. Mm -hmm. Which, yeah, to me is showing like if you're able to manipulate someone and knowingly manipulate them, that's kind of a sane thing. Mm -hmm. Or was it that he wasn't actually knowingly manipulating them, but he was just doing things to his advantage? Yeah, maybe. Peter's imaginary intergalactic gangs weren't the only strange thing to take place at Oak Ridge. The 60s and the 70s were an interesting time to be a patient at Oak Ridge. There were many controversial therapies inflicted on Peter, all trying to treat his psychotic tendencies. Peter was given LSD and other personality-breaking drugs. (laughs) Yeah, that was quite the experimental time, wasn't Uh it? One rabbit hole or deep dig that I followed was how much LSD is used in psychotherapies after reading that one client who was named in a class action suit against the treatment center, received 200 100 micrograms of LSD as a therapy. So 200 ampules. Oh my gosh. How is he still alive? (laughs) How did he not overdose on that? Well, it wasn't all at once, but that's in the course of his treatment. (laughs) In the course of his treatment, that's what he got. That's a lot of LSD. Yeah. For a drug that we know actually causes psychotic tendencies. I was going to say that would make you insane. Mm Mm-hmm. Peter was also subjected to a therapy called dyads, a personality-breaking therapy in which inmates challenge each other's belief systems while handcuffed naked together. Inmates called this therapy the 100-day Hayden. I don't know if I've ever heard of that one. And so this was one of those other whole side stories that we could do are what were the psychiatric treatments in the 60s and 70s? And that 100-day Hayden or this dyad therapy was the same treatment that Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, received prior to committing his crimes. Whoa. So would they leave them naked for 100 days? Yeah, that's what it sounds like. The purpose of it. That sounds like a terrible idea. In 1967, Oak Ridge was outfitted with a total encounter capsule. The capsule was a soundproof, windowless, 8x10 room. Inmates or patients were stripped naked and pumped full of LSD, uppers and truth serum, in an attempt to get them to bear their innermost feelings. 
Peter would be held in this womb-like capsule for days at a time until the 1970s when the program was abandoned. It sounds like all these therapies are just going to create more insanity in their patients. Yes. Peter did not respond well to any of these therapies. Well, no. Who would? What the therapy did do was encourage fellow psychopaths to take part in something similar to group therapy, encouraging them to share their innermost thoughts with each other. And this practice is really debatable today. Psychopaths like Peter often use interactions in a group setting to learn the vocabulary and the body languages to mimic others and then manipulate others with it. Yeah. By Peter's own self-admission, this is exactly what he used the years of therapy to do. See, calculated. Uh Uh-huh. Peter would use the buzzwords that he learned in his extensive therapy sessions to convince others that he was actually being cured of his impulses. Not that he was able to fully mask his sanity like Tempa Bundy was because he had all these autistic-like tendencies. Right. But he says himself that he masked. Which shows that he's knowledgeable as to his condition. Mm Mm-hmm. In 1982, Peter officially changed his name to David Michael Kruger. How fitting is that for a psychopathic murderer? Yep, perfect. And again, I had to do a little bit of side research because the connection seemed a little too much to be a mere coincidence. But it turns out that that's exactly what it was. Peter, now David, had not seen Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street would not be released for another two years. Huh. And then I thought, well, maybe the writer of Nightmare on Elm Street got his idea from Peter. But in an interview, he said that he did not use Peter as a basis for his horror film either. His character was based on a schoolyard bully from his childhood that had a similar name. Oh, I never even thought about like writers (laughs) using their own like, yeah, that little Billy Kruger. (laughs) He was the worst. I'm going to turn him into Freddy. (laughs) And that's apparently the Elm Street was the road that he had to travel down. Oh, because he probably had nightmares about him. Yeah. Oh, from being beat up. Peter would claim that he changed his name because he believed that the alien body he associated with driving his negative urges was attached to the name and that he wanted to choose a name that had less derogatory nicknames associated with it. Oh, the whole Peter Woodcock thing. (laughs) That's right. I'm not so sure about the first one, but you can definitely understand the second one. Yeah. With his new name, Peter convinced the hospital staff and the psychiatrist that he was cured and would be a prime candidate to move to a medium security Brockville Psychiatric Hospital in 1989. There, Peter enjoyed more freedom. He had supervised outings to Smith Falls Railway Museum and was even taken to the movie Silence of the Lambs. No. Yes. You don't do that. They took a psychopathic killer to Silence of the Lambs. Did they give him a notebook and a pen so he could take notes? You take him to the sound of music. (laughs) (laughs) No, nothing with children in it. Oh, true. Take that back. (laughs) Peter also rekindled a love affair he had with Bruce Hamill. Bruce has a whole story himself that we could devote a whole case to. Bruce had been convicted of murder and had been a patient of the hospital the same as Peter. He had been released because he was no longer deemed a threat to society and now worked at a security job in an Ottawa courthouse. In a courthouse? Yep. Wow. That's putting a lot of power into a murderer's hands. But he's cured. Huh. He definitely is one of those ones that we will revisit again. Because he has such an interesting story. Yeah, I'm intrigued. Peter convinced Bruce that the Alien Brotherhood would solve all the difficulties that he was experiencing in his life at this time. All he had to do was a ritual that involved killing another patient of the Brockville Psychiatric Hospital. Dennis Kerr. Dennis had spurned Peter's sexual advances and would be the focus of Peter's next murderous plan. So this time he's actually planning it out. Yeah, and it's a revenge killing because he dismissed him. Yeah, it appears that way. Sounds pretty sane to me. I mean, it's not. <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay. <laughs> but yeah. you know what I mean? Like it's like he's giving that forethought. 
On July 13, 1991, Peter had earned his very first citizen-supervised day pass. Bruce would be his escort. It was his first unsupervised release in 34 years. Whoa. So the two lovers had been planning their outing in detail for quite some time. The two told staff that they planned to eat out at several restaurants in succession and then were planning to return to the hospital to watch a movie together. But that wasn't the truth at all. No, they're going to go kill Dennis. Absolutely. Bruce visited a Canadian tire store prior to picking up Peter. With him to the store, he brought a large pipe wrench wrapped in newspaper. Bruce spent more than an hour looking at every hunting knife before choosing one and then adding a hatchet and a sleeping bag to his cart. (gasps) When he paid for his purchases, the store clerk offered to bag his other item, the pipe wrench, into two shopping bags. Bruce would make one last stop to a pharmacy to buy a pack of Nidol. Shortly before 2 p.m., Bruce arrived at the Brockville Psychiatric Hospital to sign Peter out, putting his sleeping bag that concealed the weapons on the counter while he signed the papers to get Peter out of the hospital. So he has like a kill kit right there with him. Yeah. And he just sets it on the counter as he's signing out Peter. Whoa, that is wild. From there, the couple went to the nearby woods located on the grounds of the hospital, nicknamed Procreation Park by patients of the facility. <laughs> you can guess what kinds of activities took place there. <laughs> That's Makeout Park. Yep. They went to an area that they had previously chosen and hid the weapons and the sleeping bag. They then went off to find Dennis Kerr. Dennis was a 27-year-old patient of the Brockville Hospital and somewhat of a musician. The two met just the person they were looking for on their way back from hiding their materials. Peter had already agreed to loan Dennis $500 to buy a drum set and had previously set out the terms for the loan. So Dennis was actually out looking for them to get his money. When the couple came across Dennis, Peter told them that he would have to go and retrieve his money and that they would meet him at the sumac grove to give it to him. Where they have their kill kit conveniently Mm -hmm. waiting. The two signed Peter out for a second three-hour pass and rushed back to the sumac grove to await Dennis's arrival. So they knew they needed more time. He only had so much time on these passes. So he went back, signed himself out again, or sorry, Bruce signed him out again. And they run off to the sumac grove to wait for Dennis to show up. Wow. It's like putting more money in your meter. Yep. (laughs) Wait, we're not done yet. When Dennis arrived, Bruce played like a decoy, luring Dennis into the grove. And Peter jumped out from the bushes and struck him across the back of the head with the pipe wrench. Dennis's last words were, what did you do that for? before Peter hit him again. So he was totally blindsided. Mm -hmm. Bruce then jumped right in and started stabbing (gasps) crazily. The two then proceeded to hack and stab Dennis's body. In a half-murder, half-dissection-like way, they started mutilating the body and nearly severed his head. Peter later said that he was particularly excited to hear the death rattle and felt that he saw the man's spirit leave his body. Bruce began the ritual he needed to do for the Brotherhood's acceptance. He and Peter, both drenched in blood now, sodomized the dead body and began to chant around it. When Bruce had completed his part, he took the night all that he had purchased and laid down and went to sleep naked in the sleeping bag. Ooh, covered in blood. Uh Uh-huh. While Bruce drifted off, Peter watched the body and continued to poke at it. When bored with Dennis's body, he went over to Bruce's sleeping form and ran the knife over his naked chest and testicles, but ultimately decided against killing him, feeling that he had done enough already. Did he cut him? No. Nope. Or just like gently? Just gently <gasps> running the knife over him. And Bruce had no idea because he was asleep with, this is with by the medicine. Peter, this is by Peter's own admission. This is what he did. Yikes. 
And wouldn't that be practicing restraint? That's true. Good if you're point. The, if you're this crazed killer, would you be able to practice that restraint? Right. And this is his boyfriend. Mm-hmm. So there's some emotion probably in there that stopped him from doing it. Maybe. All of this was done within an hour of Bruce signing him out of the mental hospital. Oh. The first time that he had been without supervision for 34 years. Whoa. And it's overkill. Like he didn't just... No, he just went to town. a small little crime. He went right for it. Mm -hmm. Which proves that he is not fit to be put back into society. He should be locked up forever. Yeah. And had he been declared sane and responsible for his actions, he would have probably got the death penalty. Yeah, maybe. Who knows with the justice system? He could be out on parole. Yeah, he might get out easier. If I don't he think had back been. at this time, just judging from what Ron Moffat's sentence was. That's true. Peter then left the crime scene and walked straight to the Ontario Provincial Police Station, turned himself in, saying, I want to turn myself in. I've committed a horrible crime and I deserve to spend the rest of my life in a penitentiary. I killed someone I didn't do alone. There's another person involved. He's still there. He's a very dangerous man. Peter then took them straight to the grove where they found Dennis's mutilated body and Bruce thrashing around naked, tormented by bugs. When the police arrived, Bruce believed that they were the promised alien brotherhood coming to take him. As the police approached, he started screaming at them. Are you here to take me? I'm ready. I've done everything you wanted. Where do I go? Is your vehicle here? He flew into a psychotic rage and had to be tackled to the ground by the police officers. So he's the crazy one. And with Peter turning himself in, he knew dang well that there was no aliens coming. Yep. Yeah. I don't think he was criminally insane. I agree with your assessment. Yeah. Yeah. That if he actually thought aliens were coming, he would have waited for the aliens like Bruce did. Yeah. Right. Bruce was taken straight to the Brockville lockup. They didn't even bother. He was like, nope, he's insane. We're just taking him right back to the hospital. But Peter was held in the city police lockup after receiving stitches to his hand because he had sustained a cut during the attack when he was doing all the stabbing. There, he was so aroused by the events of the night that he masturbated the whole time he was in the jail cell that night in full view of everyone. The whole night? The whole night. It's reported that in a 10-hour period, it's estimated that he masturbated at least six times. Just... Out in front of everybody, like, yeah. he doesn't even care. Yeah, but he has spent 100 days handcuffed to a different guy, naked. Yeah, that's true. Right? Like, that would get rid of those inhibitions, probably. Mm-hmm. So then, in the course of trying to treat him, did they make him so much worse? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I don't think they helped. Because look what he did on his very first day of freedom. Mm-hmm. For the murder of Dennis Kerr, Peter Woodcock was transferred back to Oak Ridge Division of the Penetanguishene Mental Health Center. In the years after Kerr's murder, he has tried to explain why he killed, but his reasons have never been good ones. In a 1993 interview, he said, I'm accused of having no morality, which is a fair assessment because my morality is whatever the system allows. So essentially, he committed the murders because no one stopped him from doing it. On March 5th, 2010, on his 71st birthday, Peter died of natural causes. And that is the bizarre case of the dirtbag Peter Woodcock, a.k.a. David Michael Kruger, who was so insane that he was not held accountable for his crimes, yet sane enough to manipulate fellow patients and fool psychiatrists and lawyers into giving him a chance to murder again. Wow. No, I think... He was sane enough to be held accountable. And if he had been sent to prison, he likely wouldn't have gotten out and been able to murder again. No, I don't believe he would have at all. Well, you did dig deep on this case. You gave us a lot of his history and lots of following rabbit holes. Oh, I can see how that would happen in this case for Mm -hmm. sure. 
So I'm curious where you're going to take us next week. Well, next week is Valentine's. So next week, you'll be bringing us a Valentine's Day story then. I will. I will give you a Valentine's Day story, buried motive style. Ooh, is it another Starcross Lovers one? It's not. It's a love story made of nightmares. Let's just say that. Oh, so I can only imagine. But until then, we hope you have a wonderful week. See ya. Bye. record or not record that is the question if we're not breaking wind it's just the wind outside you know i'm leaving that in there right i was waiting for it i knew you were gonna say it i didn't know until i said it so you know me better than i do we should just recorded all the stuff i said earlier okay insanity yeah we're all going insane here that's what we're doing who is also known as David Michael Kruger. You're already giggling, Christy. <laughs> Remember, we established that we're t- like teenagers over here. You did this on purpose, didn't you? <laughs> She's like, yep, yep. I did. <laughs> Saw it, had to do it. <laughs> Came over it. I knew you were going to say that. I knew it. I'm like, she's going to go for friends. <laughs> I'm not politically correct. Throw this thing from it. There wasn't the same understanding. Understanding? You got him. 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 Now she can't say it right at all. He would study the street. The street car. A street car. A street car. Do you know what that is? Hey, if you know it all, you might as well be a know it all. Yep, that's right. That's what happens when you stick electrical cord up your woo. Electrically charged. Yeah. Famous last words. I don't think we should listen. Okay, hang on. Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.